I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to our broadcast today, Dr. Marta Tejado. She is president and CEO of Consumer Reports. Welcome, Marta. Great to be here with you, Alexander. Let me ask you, what is the most urgent concern in consumer privacy on your mind in this new year of 2021? The most pressing concern, I think, is the lack of power that we as consumers have uh, over our data. Uh, We have no control. We uh, are not really sure who owns the data that is being collected by us. So I would say just a total lack of agency right now. A lack of agency and a lack of transparency about what agency we may actually have. What do you hope to transpire in these next months in terms of federal legislation? Because we know that big tech has not imposed on it, as it promised, the kind of self-regulatory framework to ensure that users and consumers have knowledge of their rights and access to their data. Well, let's take a step back because I think we're at an unprecedented moment. We have been um, seeing that big tech has not done an effective job of policing themselves. We have seen that consumers are more vulnerable, whether it's hacking into our personal private uh, information, not being alerted in a timely fashion, uh, and recognizing that while consumer reports, we've been around 85 years. We are very proud of the consumer protections and the rights that we've secured over that time period. But what I think is alarming about this particular moment is that many of those consumer rights and protections don't apply to this new digital marketplace that we're all in. And the other aspect that is totally unprecedented is that we are still struggling with a global pandemic. And so many of the activities, the marketplace activities that consumers uh, take place in every day have shifted to this online world. And so that is where we are conducting our business, our transactions, um, students are learning, and yet we have very few rights and, and very little accountability of the big tech companies. And to make matters worse, we are also at the frontier of these new monopolies, right? At, at, we have seen a lot of success in our ability to control monopolies. Uh, we've stood up agencies around any trust, but we are seeing a very new and different generation of monopolies now. And we don't, and we lack the agency capacity, capability, and expertise to keep pace with the kind of change and innovation that we're seeing that is undoubtedly providing consumers with convenience, but at what cost? What are we giving up? Is that transparent to consumers? I don't think it is. So the question is, where do we find the virtual governance to regulate in this arena successfully? Uh, You allude to the fact that when it comes to modern communications, whether it's Section 230 or FCC protocols, none of it was ever modernized for consumers or creators 
to live with the same kind of scrutiny, accountability, and privacy shield for consumers. So what do you think would fast track in, in these months ahead the appropriate and sufficiently comprehensive either legislation or public policy blueprint to move forward? Well, I think one always has to start when, when you're, I, I love your question on fast tracking, because I think one of the things we need in order to fast track is demand. Consumers need to demand. Um, they need to recognize uh, what is being denied them in terms of their own power, their own control over their data and the safety of that data and how it's being um, commercialized. So I think we have a lot of work to do in continuing to educate consumers, but I also think that the big tech companies are doing themselves quite a bit of harm as well, because I think we're seeing a shift in public opinion. When we did our most recent poll, we saw that 82% of consumers are very concerned about their privacy online. Uh, so I think, I think there's a shift. I think there is an appetite to also confront big tech in a way that we have not seen before. And so we're seeing some experiments. Um, we saw some experiments in California with the California Privacy um, Bill that we were very much a part of. Um, I like what they're trying to do by giving um, consumers uh, opportunities to opt out and and to claim their data and their privacy um, but like anything you know we put legislation through the test just as we do products and services and when we contacted and ran an experiment in California to find out well just how easy is it to do that what practically speaking how does it work and it doesn't work so well and so so there's some experiments there's more to do and we're seeing also some legal uh, battles with Facebook. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. Uh, we're also, um, one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is uh, we're known for a lot of our labs where we're testing hardware uh, and products. But one of the things that I felt we really needed to stand up uh, in this digital world is a digital lab. And what I mean by that is there are no standards for privacy in the connected, uh, connected world of products. And so by creating and forcing standards, we want to create a race to the top. So I think, yes, we have, we see signs that there is an environment for legislation and an appetite to go after big tech. But I think we also have to keep the pressure on uh, corporate actors. And, and so it's, a, it's, it's really a two-pronged approach. Um, the standards that we're, uh, the open source standards at our digital lab um, is really about doing just that, is creating standards so consumers, when they're out buying a television, you, you have some sense of awareness of which of these television brands are scooping up your data, which of these television brands, when you turn on the television, is already set to be a little bit more hackable than the other. When the consumers have that information, then they can make their purchases and bend the marketplace. So I think creating standards as well as legislation so that consumers can really demand the kinds of standards that we've seen in the marketplace uh, of yesteryear that, that I, I think right now we're in, it's the wild west. Right, and it's been the wild west 
And we've observed that on our broadcast for several years. Uh, and I don't recall a moment when there was a watershed and there was a force that was going to mobilize and change the Wild West as the status quo. Now, as we enter a new Congress and a new presidency, there is potentially that activity, that momentum. Um, when you say a two-pronged approach, I also wonder, are you thinking that it is more top-down or bottom-up with respect to the way in which effective virtual governance is going to be executed and implemented? Is it communities demanding this by IP address, by zip code, by state, and building the legal infrastructure in California, in Indiana, in New York, um, or, or is it really holistic? Because in order to tackle the problem of monopolized platforms that have legal immunity right now for so much, um, we, we absolutely need a federal approach. I think it's absolutely both. It's top down and bottom up. Um, I think when, you know, when I, I remember my introduction to the consumer movement, um, the consumer movement and the mentors, incredible mentors that I had, uh, none of them came from my community, you know, as a Latina woman. And many of the members, the former members of Consumer Reports also um, didn't look uh, like some of the communities that I spent most of my childhood in. And so I think what I've tried to do at CR in, in the last five years is really um, understand that the, the consumer of today is very different. And we have, to, we, we have to be where they are. We have to outstretch and not wait for consumers to come to us. In the past, right, we, we thought, well, well, information is power. And we did a very good job of providing information uh, to consumers. But think about the explosion of misinformation right now and what it means to be a savvy consumer today. And so there's, there's a lot of work to do. And uh, for us, that means being where consumers are uh, and partnering and making sure that the information is not just at CR, but it's also on other platforms like The Root that is a place where African-Americans uh, go for information or partnering using our investigative reporting skills to partner with the Guardian and investigate what's happening in our water supply and how safe it is. So I think it's recognizing that we have to outstretch um, our efforts to a much broader community so that we can get the attention and we can demand um, the fairness that we need to see in the marketplace. I think uh, on the federal level, um, I think it, it's imperative. It's imperative that we start to see um, elected officials recognize that, you know, given the pace of innovation and change and the marketplace uh, that we are all on in the digital space now, is we need to see agent, we, we need a generation of, uh, public servants that are just as savvy about this technology and this innovation for the public interest. We, we have to run at pace with innovation and change. It is bringing remarkable things to our economy and to our consumer marketplace. But we know that 
we also need a watchdog. It's these three legs of the stool, right? It's, it's, it's the public and civil society, it's government, and it's also the corporate sector. Uh, it, right now, it, they're out of balance. And we're at a moment, I think, where we have to recognize how are we going to rebalance the marketplace and, and take advantage of all the things te technology can do for us. That is the reality. It is out of balance. We have legislators who are industry-oriented rather than consumer-oriented. Frankly, to be honest, how much of that is related to the vast lobbying complex um, that supports candidates every two years uh, on the midterm cycle, every four years on the presidential cycle. Um, we know that companies like Facebook, Alphabet, you, you name the major players, they are doling out cash left and right to support candidates of both parties to keep the Wild West the status quo. That's not a new headline, Alexander. Right. Um, yeah, but, but, and, but I will tell you this. I will say um, the thing, we live in a democracy. We have to hold people accountable. And they come up for elections. And we hold them accountable. And, and that is the beauty of our system, that there is that tension there. In a democracy, there is no sitting by the sidelines. And if we've learned anything over the last year, it's that when you do not sit on the sidelines and you engage and you participate, change happens. It may not happen immediately, but it does happen. And the arc of justice is one we have to continue and continue to fight for. So what, what I have learned over the course of the year is that we are on the right track and engaging consumers and providing the tools, but also recognizing that um, change does take time. We, we don't have to sit on our hands and, and expect that uh, government alone is going to fix things. I think what we have seen uh, think about it. We have 6 million members in Consumer Reports. And, and the beauty of it is that just as many of them are blue as red, right? And they come to us and they're part of this community because they believe in independence. They believe in the rigor and the science and the facts that we have a common set of facts to evaluate and hold companies accountable and to hold those watchdogs, government watchdogs accountable. So I think there's great promise. I see a resurgence in the need for trusted advice and partners and just a circling back to science and to recognizing that to solve these immense societal problems we have, we need a common set of facts. That it is, it is absolutely one of the um, bedrock touchstones of CR that our founders were such... Um, in intelligent and informed skeptics and healthy skepticism is good, but we need a, share, a common share of facts. So I, I see great promise in the activation in leaning in. Um, and I'll give you an example of um, not having to wait on uh, change legislation. We know um, gridlock, we, we expect we don't, gridlock is not going to evaporate tomorrow. We know that. But here's, here, there, there are different levers that one can pull. And incentivizing change, uh, the bottom up, can also happen because, think about it, we may go to our election booth 
one, two, three times a year. We're in the marketplace every single day making changes and making transactions and trying to fulfill the aspirations we have for our families, whether it's finding a loan for a house, whether it's paying for higher education um, and finding insurance for your car, you name it. We're in the marketplace every day. That's incredible untapped power that consumers have every day. When, uh, think about it, we, we have been heralded for being the organization that forced seatbelts to be mandatory in every car. You know, now we just think they, they, they're automatically uh, there because they were not. And now the seatbelts of today are technology. And when we think about the life-saving technology in cars today, um, we discovered that they're add-ons, they're luxury items in the automobiles today. And that's just not sustainable. Safety, life-saving technology should not be. And so what we did was we announced, if you want to be in the top 10 picks at Consumer Reports, you need to include technology, life-saving technology as standard. Now, what was interesting was the first year, we saw it move from maybe 23% to 61%. This year, it's now 72%. So we... These are different levers that we can pull as consumers to move the market to fairness and justice. Um, so I think, I think there are many things, but, but all of it works together. I don't think um, any one of them solves the problem for us. In a democracy, you need government, you need the corporate sector, you need a healthy competitive market, and you need engaged consumers. Marta, is there something analogous in the digital sphere, it resonated with me when you use the safety illusion because there's also the safety net and foundation of broadband access, which I know you at CR are uh, pushing for. What about ensuring that technology companies are doing their part when we know in this pandemic, it hasn't just been inequitable in terms of health outcomes, but in terms of education outcomes, who has access, uh, who has to drive to a McDonald's, you know, miles away, um, and who has to, um, you know, share a very slow speed of internet, or and who has no internet access at all uh, to do business, commerce, to be educated during the pandemic. So what kind of standards or safety net, if you will, are you hoping companies can ally around in, in um, ensuring that, that they are doing their part with uh, securing broadband for every American. I'm so glad you raised that because that's something else that we have been pushing and, and fighting for um, access to broadband because here we are now, all of us online and the students that are most vulnerable are those that do not have access to broadband and to learn remotely. And who are those students? The most vulnerable communities, whether they be Latino, African-American. And so I was encouraged when I saw in the stimulus package, uh, $10 billion. And I think, I think that's great and that's a start and there's so much more to do because we know that 42 million uh, Americans are not able to access. And when they do access, uh, it's a monopoly and they don't have a choice. And so the price, is controlled by that one company. And that 
is the case in rural America. It is, it is the case in way too many communities. And so, yes, I, I see that the tide is turning there now. And that is another way in which this moment has really raised that alarm bell for us. Um, but I see it in other ways too. And this point of who is being impacted, where are the disparate impacts? And I think I do see more of that in vulnerable communities. And so let's take um, health care, for example. One of the things we, in our investigation, uncovered, um, and I know that you've talked a lot about algorithmic bias on the open mind, and, and that is another way that we are seeing inequities in our online world. One of the investigations we had recently was to look at um, some of the uh, questions that patients, kidney patients, were being asked uh, on their condition. And what we learned was that those questions were creating an algorithmic bias for African-Americans, and they were being directed um, away, potentially away from life-saving treatment. So you have to be able to do that investigation and get access and, see tr and, and have transparency into those algorithms to really start to change and create change um, because the bias in those algorithms is really reflecting uh, the age-old biases that we had uh, in the marketplace prior to our digital marketplace. So there's a lot more investigation. Uh, I think it really hinges on trust, transparency, um, and just recognizing that we are at a point right now, uh, much like we were, you know, we've been around 85 years. Uh, we were stood up around the Great Depression, another time in our history where we confronted some really deep divides and an economy that was failing um, ordinary families. I think we're there again. And I think we will not solve those issues unless we really, really look hard at the ways in which we can bring equity, trust, and transparency to the digital marketplace. And that's really about AI ethics uh, when it comes to the question of systemic, formulaic, algorithmic uh, potions um, that, that are um, digitally thrust upon us without our consent. Um, how much of that is subjective or objective, I and mean, we, we think that every company should have an ethicist, um, but how clear-cut is it when it comes to these questions? Well, algorithms aren't, aren't objective. They're subjective, right? It's, it's, um, and, and there's a lot of mystery about them, but um, we, you know, one of the other stories we, we, we uncovered was um, car insurance. Everybody needs car insurance. And you think that the price of your car insurance is based on uh, your driving record, but it's not. It's based on an algorithm that takes a variety of composite things about you, that it learns about you, and it decides the pricing. And the thing we uncovered was that one of the most um, uh, pivotal in, uh, data points about you is where you live and whether you're Hispanic, uh, Black, and, and you're has nothing to do with your driving record. So every touch point in our lives is being filtered through these, you know, quote unquote, uh, um, invisible algorithms that um, are, are really being constructed by people that don't look 
like many of the vulnerable communities that are falling prey to them. And so you have a whole generation of redlining that is part of our digital marketplace. The reason I asked you about objective versus subjective is because we know that the technologists behind some of these algorithms would argue that the criteria they're choosing are fair, right? And you're, and you're saying that's often not the case. Um, it's, it's, of course, a cliche in journalism that uh, what is objective is always subjective. So I just, I think that we don't have the infrastructure in place to, to really account for this, um, like you said, in the virtual marketplace. As a final, final thought, just for, for both the consumers and the, and the executives listening to our conversation, what is the most effective way that you can engage in the modification uh, or the correction of these algorithms, especially when those proprietary interests uh, are often not disclosed and are often very sanctimonious and defensive about what they're doing? Transparency, transparency, transparency. We need the capability on the watchdog side, the government side. Uh, it's great that we could investigate uh, algorithmic bias in, uh, in, in medical care and in insurance, but this problem is much larger than any single investigation. And you're absolutely right, Alexander. We do not have uh, the infrastructure to hold uh, these companies accountable. And, and we also don't have the transparency about how this marketplace is how pricing and competition in this marketplace uh, is being sorted out by the very few. And right. so we've got a lot more to do. Um, and I think um, we, we have to, again, the promise is also, we need to engage consumers. They are a sleeping giant. Right. They have to demand. We are always very focused on the supply side, but we have a consumer-driven economy that's a sleeping giant of power to demand and really hold companies accountable. Right. As we, as we said from the outset, uh, the invisibility of the platforms can't, can't go unheeded anymore. And consumers have to know whether it's your online platform, Mozilla, Chrome, or whether it's the device you're using, um, you're, you're, you are responsible for that question, assessing um, whether you're being protected and demanding that protection. Martha Teado, CEO and President of Consumer Reports, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you, Alexander. It's a pleasure. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.